Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Welcome to the uh, Poor Folk Service uh, here at Woodland Hills. We always refer to the Memorial Day service as the Poor Folk Service because all the rich folks are out of their cabins opening them up on Memorial Day. So uh, here we are, the righteous and the poor. Oh, God bless those rich folks at their cabin. Uh, we need, we need, need more of them here. Come on, come on down. But uh, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, when I put the messages together and really try to seek uh, God on this, I don't take any kind of consideration as to who's going to be there, who's not going to be there. I learned a long time ago, right at the beginnings of Woodland Hills 20 years ago, that uh, whether there's two people or two million uh, is not to be uh, have anything to do. It's not on my radar screen. Uh, that's, that's about God. I'm to preach the same thing, whether there's two or two million. Uh, and God put this message on my heart for this weekend. That is, um, and it didn't, it didn't even occur to me that it was Memorial Day weekend, and it wouldn't have made any difference. But the, the message is uh, uh, the most important message you could ever possibly hear. Uh, and this is, this is everything, as you'll see here this morning. Uh, it's, as I've said it before, it's about love and the centrality of love. And this is Christianity 101. It's also Christianity PhD. Uh, we're, we're, it, it, this encompasses everything. And you'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. I, I want to start with this. I want to tell you about uh, two debates I was in. I used to do a lot of debates. I don't, haven't done them much in the last couple of years. I'm not sure that they do much, really. Uh, they're a lot of fun, but uh, I'm not sure they accomplish much. Um, but back when I used to do a lot of these, um, there's two that stand out. One, one is a debate that I think I clearly won. Uh, another one's a debate that I very clearly lost. So here's the one that I won. I was at the University of Minnesota, and um, I, I was invited to speak there. I was debating this atheist, Gordon Stein. He passed away about five, six years ago. But um, he's, uh, he was a pretty well-known atheist. He had uh, uh, edited some anth- anthologies uh, that collected some atheist writings and stuff. And we were debating the existence of a personal God. And I had, just prior to this debate, really formulated, pulling together uh, several different arguments that I found in different writings, mainly from C.S. Lewis, but I packaged this particular argument for the personal existence of God that I still think is the most compelling argument that's out there. I've actually shared it a few times here at the church. Um, But um, the way I packaged it was kind of unique, something that Gordon Stein had never for sure seen before. And I leveraged my whole case in this argument on this one. My whole, my whole debate was on this argument. And Gordon Stein, since he had never heard it before, he was off guard. He didn't know what to do with it. He had no real response to it. He had a bunch of note cards that he took with him on all these other arguments. And so in his response to me, he would refute these other arguments. And when I would come up to rebut him, I'd say, hey, listen, Thomas Aquinas isn't in the room. Why are you refuting Thomas Aquinas? I'm the one here, and would you talk to this argument? But he couldn't talk to my argument because he didn't know how to respond to it. Boom, I won that debate. It was a, it was a, it was a KO if ever there was a KO. Yeah. Now, the thing was, afterwards, we had a bunch of Christians, the Christians on campus came around, they're going, yay, and, and even some of the atheist folks were over there congratulating me, and, and so it was supposed to be a high moment. Uh, but as we're walking kind of out of this auditorium, and I got this crowd of people going, yay, I look back at Gordon, and he's behind the podium, kind of just going through his cards, as if asking, what the heck just happened? I mean, he was just lying, he was, he, he looked, I felt really bad for him. And I, I had shaken his hand, as you normally do, and I was nice to him. But looking back on it, I wish I would have just said bye to the crowd and gone down and said, hey, listen, let's go out to a pub and just hang out for a little bit. I didn't do that. And the, the victory, uh, it, it, it was kind of hollow, actually. It felt empty. Okay, so now here's a, another debate where I got my butt kicked. Uh, this was a couple of years later, and I was debating a guy who was not a famous atheist. I had never heard of this guy before. Um, and we were debating uh, whether you can have, whether a uh, theistic worldview is more conducive to uh, grounding a morality or an atheistic worldview. And he was arguing atheism, and I was arguing for the theistic view. Now, I ha- thought I knew what he was going to argue. I've read a lot of books on people who espouse this position and try to anchor a sense of morality uh, in culture or in biology or whatever. And I had a lot of good arguments against what I thought he was going to argue. But it wasn't what he argued. 
He comes out and he gives this argument that I had never heard of before. Uh, because I was confident I knew what he was going to argue, I didn't bother to research what he would actually argue. <laughs> I didn't look at any of his previous debates. I went under thinking I knew. I assumed, and you know what they say about assumptions. We won't repeat it here. But uh, it worked that night, I'll tell you. I, I, he came out, and now he was giving an argument that I'd never heard of before. So I was on my heels the whole night. I was playing defensive. I, I would give a bunch of arguments against positions that I thought he was going to argue, but they didn't actually argue. And so he would say to me what I said to Gordon Stein, and that is, why are you arguing against these people who aren't in the room? I'm the one that's here respond to my argument. But I couldn't because I'd never heard of his argument before. Now, here's the thing. Even though I wasn't uh, on my game academically and intellectually that night, I, I, I got my butt kicked. But uh, I was in my zone spiritually. I had, at this point in my life, and this is 20 years, 25 years ago probably, but I, I really just discovered how important it is, it's absolutely cent- central to living a kingdom life, that you get all your life and your worth and your significance and security from what God thinks about you as revealed in Jesus and from nothing else. And so even though I was there that night and I was really getting whooped, I was mindful that all my life is in Christ. And because all my life is in Christ, I don't need to worry about what people think and what the opinion polls are saying or who I'm impressing or who I'm... You you don't have to be embarrassed or anything because all your life is in Christ. And so even though I was getting whooped that night, I was able to have fun. I was able to say to him, man, that's a really good point. I'll have to get back on that. I'm not sure what I'll say about that. I've never heard that before. That strikes me as weird, but... You know, I, 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 I don't have a response to that. And I was okay with that because I get my life from Christ. And I was able to treat him with, we actually had a lot of fun, you know, throwing jibes at each other and whatever. Now, after the debate, all the people are around him going, yay. And I'm over here looking through my car saying, what, what just happened? <laughs> what happened? But I, I had several of the, the people who were part of the atheist club that had invited us to debate at this university they came over to me. There was about five, six of them, including the president of the Atheist Club. And um, they wanted to know more about becoming a follower of Jesus. And I was like, oh, I was surprised. <laughs> I go, really? Because uh, it seems to me that he just cleaned my clock. And, and so what, was there an argument? What did I say that, that, that you found compelling? And they said, oh, we think the debate was a draw. These things usually are, which I think was way overly gracious. But uh, they said it wasn't so much what you said, but how you said it. And, uh, and this is kind of sad. They, they said that they host two of these debates every year, and they hadn't ever seen a Christian treat an opponent with respect and, and uh, you know, in a, in a real nice way. And he, they said, it seemed like you guys were having fun up there, and you're just humans, and dialoguing about this, and you seem to actually be fond of him. And, uh, and something about the character of the debate is what intrigued them to want to become, to look more into becoming a follower of Jesus. And we went out that night and had a nice discussion, and I know from later correspondence that at least one of them surrendered their life to Christ and became a disciple. Um, yeah. Which, which really just, it, it proves this point. You can win a debate and still lose. And you can lose a debate and still win. Because at the end of the day, it's not really about the debate. It's about the character that you showed in debating. How you debate is more important than what you debate. Not that that's an excuse for sloppy thinking. I think it's really good for believers to have good arguments. And, and the Bible tells us to be prepared to give an answer for the faith that we have. A reason, a, 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 an apology, apologia in Greek, it means a defense. To give a defense of what you believe. This is an excuse for sloppy thinking. But it is to say that more important than the points you make, the points you score, the people you impress, the arguments you have, the books you've read, and the books you write, more important than that, far more important than that, infinitely more important than that, is your character. The character you manifest when you debate. So the passage that we're hovering on these days as we're racing through the book of Colossians. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul says, Above all, put on love. Above all these things, put on, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all, above all your arguments, above all your points, above all the things you, you, you think you know, above all the 
people you impress, make sure that you put on love. It is, for us, the highest, the greatest, the most important consideration that there could possibly be. Which is why we're, we're hovering on this these days. Now here's the thing. What I've just said, probably most people listening to this uh, sermon here in this auditorium and through podcasts, you've heard that before. And in fact, some of you who have been at Woodland Hills Church for a while, I don't recall, but I, I'm assuming I've used that analogy before because I've used up all my analogies over the last 20 years at least three or four times. Yeah, you only have one life to share, and so there you are. But this message isn't about newness. Now, next week, I'll be talking about something that will, for many of you, be new. In fact, it could be radically new and, and, and a game changer. So I want to encourage you to come next week and get something new. But this week is not about new at all. I want to talk about the old. And I'm not really going to say anything more than what I've already said about, above all, clothe yourself with love. But the word I got for this week... Uh, is, is, and it's just one word. It was, it was the word soak. Soak. And for, in fact, we're going to title this message, Soak It In. Because I want to review what Scripture says about love, and I want us to soak it in. If, if above all we're to clothe ourselves with love, then that means that love is the most important consideration we could possibly have, which means getting this on the inside of our life is the most important consideration we could have the most important goal we could ever have to be transformed by this. So I want us to soak in this. I want us to bathe in this teaching. Because until we get this down to the point where it's transforming us, impacting the actual way we conduct our lives, until that happens, there's nothing else really worth talking about. In fact, moving on to new things, well, that can be a major distraction from what is supremely important, which is this old thing. And that is that the most important thing is learning how to live in love and to serve others. Um, and so this is going to be about saturating, just letting this soak in. And I want to encourage us to have open hearts and open minds as you hear this message. Don't let your brain do this, oh, I've already heard this before, and then kind of wander off. Attend to this as though you've never heard it before. And as I'm going through this, if you find yourself having questions and, and objections and qualifications, those are all fine things, and we'll talk about those in later message messages. But for this one, I would encourage you to just set those aside so that we let the, the sense of urgency that there is in the New Testament about this, we let that hit us, that we feel the sense of urgency. I feel this. This is urgent. This, the sense of the weight on this, the gravitas on this message could not be greater. I'm aware of the fact that as a leader, and we at Woodland Hills Church are aware of this, that we have to present everybody fully mature in Christ on that day. That, that will be our judgment seat of Christ. And the criteria for whether a person is fully mature or not is first and foremost, do they love like Jesus loved? Uh, and so I feel like my behind is on the line here. Not that I'm afraid of going to hell or whatever, but, but it, the Bible tells us that our works will be tried by fire. And, and, and uh, uh, this is the criteria that we'll be assessed by. So I want to pray that the Holy Spirit saturates us, soaks us, baptizes us, invades us with His love, and that this teaching doesn't just go into our head, but it gets into every pore of our being and reaches into the innermost crevices of our heart. That changes, and it changes us from the inside out. So pray with me here for a moment. Holy Spirit, uh, as I review this material uh, for us as a body and for those who are listening through podcasts, uh, God, I pray that you and the power of your spirit just inflame it with your, the fire of your love. Invade us, Lord. Saturate us, Lord. Right here, right now, baptize us. I pray the coin would fall in the slot and our eyes would be opened and our hearts would be opened to receive this deeply and transform us. Transform us to look like Jesus, giving his life for others on the cross when they could not have deserved it less. Do it, Lord. My words can't do it. My words cannot do it. I surrender to you. Holy Spirit, you can do it. Have your way in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's start by saturating ourselves in the biblical definition of love. Because it's all important. The Bible gives us a clear, an objective, an unambiguous definition of what love looks like when it points us to the cross. 1 John 3.16 it says, here's how we know what love is. Jesus gave his life for us. 
So also we should give our life, lay down our life for one another. That, folks, is love. Love isn't this sentimental, warm, mushy, fuzzy, romantic feeling that our culture often identifies as love. That can be a little expression of love, wonderful. But you know what love is. The, the kind of love that God is. The kind of love that the kingdom is about. The kind of love that's to characterize our life. You know what that love is like by looking to the cross. Now on the cross, God set aside all of the glory of being God and the prerogatives and the privileges of being God and the comfort of being God in order to dive into the deepest crevice of our hell, the hell that we have made. And out of solidarity with us, God bore our sin and bore the judgment for that sin, which is abandonment from God. That's what Jesus went through on our behalf. God giving his life for a race of people who could deserve it less, who couldn't deserve it less. That, folks, is what love looks like. It has nothing to do, really. The essence of love has nothing to do with having a warm, fuzzy, gushy, romantic, sentimental feeling towards somebody. It's about a willingness to sacrifice for another. What God does for us on the cross. The cross is God saying, here's what you, here's what I think of you. Here's how much you matter to me. Here's what you're worth to me. The cross is that. On the cross, God pays a price that is beyond any price anyone could pay for a race of people who could deserve it less. And thereby he ascribes to us a worth that's beyond any worth that could be measured. Even though we in and of ourselves were enemies of God, we were worthless. God ascribes that worth to us. The cross says that every individual, you and me and every individual that God's ever created, was worth God Almighty dying for. A God-forsaking death. That, folks, is love. Love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. You ascribe worth to another. You are worth this, and you show it, you manifest it, you communicate it by how you are willing to sacrifice for them. You see, God wants your neighbor, that grouchy neighbor of yours, that ornery, obscene, ungodly neighbor of yours, that mean neighbor of yours. God wants that neighbor to know that you think, to know that you agree with God that he is worth God Almighty dying for. Which means God wants that neighbor to know that you think that he is worth you dying for. Because if he's worth God dying for, he's certainly worth you dying for. Our job is to communicate that to the neighbor. That grouchy, obscene, ungodly neighbor. That mean neighbor. We've all got him. Um, now here's the thing. Most, most believers would say, oh yes, yes, indeed, amen, hallelujah. I, I, he's worth God dying for, therefore he's worth me dying for. I give my life for my neighbor. And it's easy to do that because we, we know we probably won't have to. <laughs> we love to agree with hypotheticals. That probably won't happen. But here's the thing. Clearly, if that neighbor of ours is worth us sacrificing our life for, that neighbor of ours is worth us sacrificing an hour of our life for. As when he needs help carrying the lumber into the backyard or needs help uh, with the windows or whatever their neighbor's doing, if, if we're willing to sacrifice our life, surely we have to be willing to sacrifice an hour. The neighbor needs to know that you think he's worth sacrificing an hour for. Or if we're willing to sacrifice our life for our neighbor, surely the neighbor's worth sacrificing an evening for by inviting that neighbor over for dinner. Or certainly, at the very least, that neighbor's worth having a 15-minute discussion out in the front yard because nobody else in the block wants to talk to the person. And if we're not willing to sacrifice the hour or the evening or the 15 minutes, does that not make our confession that we would sacrifice our life for him rather hollow? It's easy to sacrifice the life that you know you'll never have to sacrifice. But will we sacrifice the hour that we very well can sacrifice or the evening or the 15 minutes? Our job, here's what we need to soak in. Holy Spirit, bathe us in this. The kingdom quality of our life is determined, first and foremost, by our willingness to sacrifice like that to live like that, to ascribe worth to the grouchy neighbor and everybody else that we come upon. That's who your neighbor is, whoever you come upon. Just be, uh, our job, the quality of our life is manifested mostly by our willingness to sacrifice for them, to do to them what Jesus does for us. That, folks, is the kingdom. It looks like the cross. The degree to which we're willing to bleed is the degree to which our life manifests the kingdom. And by bleed, I don't mean that literally. I mean the degree to which we're willing to be inconvenienced. The degree to which we're willing to have our life pinched a little bit. 
to suffer maybe a little bit, to sacrifice a little bit, the degree to which we're willing to do that for others, especially the enemies that no one else will do it for, to that degree and only to that degree is our life a kingdom life. Because to that degree and only to that degree is our life conforming to the love that God reveals on Calvary. Whenever we say the word love, think cross. Our job is to look like the cross to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. And everything, but everything, but everything, but everything depends on that. And the important thing isn't do you agree with that intellectually. The important thing is, will you let that on the inside so that it actually impacts how you live, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your resources. Everything hangs on this. So what I want to do now is I'm going to do an overview, a quick overview of just how urgent this is in the New Testament. How central this teaching on love is in the New Testament. How important it is for the people of God to make this the central ambition of their life. Second to none. And trumping every other consideration. And I'll break this down into four different groups. This New Testament teaching under four different headings. Some of this you have heard before. Certainly if you've been attending Woodland Hills for any length of time, some of this you will have heard before. But receive it as though you're hearing it for the first time and collapse all defenses. Your brains attempt to make an excuse or to come up with questions or to water this down or to compromise it. Set that aside and just let it impact you. And if it convicts you, wonderful, let it convict you. We've got to, sat- We've got to let this soak us. Just let it soak us. So here's what the New Testament says about love. First of all, Love as defined by the cross. It is the distinguishing mark of a disciple. It's the way that you know that a disciple is a real disciple. Is that their life looks like Calvary. Or at least they're growing in that direction because we're all in process on this, right? And so we, we read things like this. John says, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. Therefore, whoever does not love abides in death. You know you pass from death, the realm of death, the realm of condemnation, into life, the life of God, because you uh, love one another. You, which means, according to the biblical definition of, of, of love, you're willing to sacrifice for one another. You're willing to bleed for one another. That's how you know you've passed. You pass from death to life when you manifest life. And the life is the life of God. And the life of God always looks like Calvary. It always looks like the cross. People often ask the question, how do you know that you're really saved? How do you know that you're really a Christian? How do you know? And they often come up with a lot of different criteria. Usually, in America, we would say, well, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe. And if you profess the right doctrines, well, then you're in. Or they might say, you know, how much do you attend church? Or how much do you give to the church? Or blah, 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 blah. And those can all be wonderful, fine. But the main criteria that distinguishes a person who is in life as opposed to a person who is in death, is that the person who is in life is going to manifest life, and life in the kingdom always looks like Calvary. So the all-important question is, is, are we willing, are we a people who are growing in the direction where we're willing to bleed for others and sacrifice for others, not just those who like us, but those who don't like us, to know where the true kingdom is? This set me free a number of years ago. where I, I, I came to understand that to know what the kingdom where the kingdom is. Don't ask people what they believe. Words are worthless. Throughout history, we've got people who profess faith in Christ, but went around torturing people. In Jesus' name, don't ask, what, don't ask people what they believe. Rather, just look. And where you find individuals and a group that manifest the humility of Jesus, the servant attitude of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus, the willingness to sacrifice that Jesus has, especially towards their enemy, where you find individuals in a group that look like that, that's the kingdom. And where you don't find that, according to John here, where you don't find that, there isn't the kingdom. It doesn't matter what they say about themselves, it's not the kingdom. And when I understand that, it just sets me free because I don't have to go around feeling weird and having to apologize for some of the crap the church did throughout history. Because that's not the kingdom. I've got no more to do with that than I do with, with Buddhism or Islam or some other religion. That's just, religions do good. Religions kill people. That's what religions do. The kingdom's got nothing to do with that. The kingdom is about a people who are looking at Jesus in order to look like Jesus. 
And they're growing in, in their likeness uh, of, of Calvary-like love. That's the kingdom. You know you have passed from death to life when you manifest this kind of love. It's the distinguishing mark of the disciple. Listen to this. Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the distinguishing mark of a child of the Father in heaven. It is at this point that I find the majority of American evangelicals say, bye-bye. Yeah, you're fine up till then. Uh, here's where we get off. But I can't help it. I didn't write this. I didn't make this up. Uh, this can be offensive. It can be scandalous. It can be outrageous. It looks foolish. The Bible tells us to expect people to say that because it does. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You'll know that someone is a child of the Father. Look at If you're a child, you've got the DNA of your parent. So you know a child of the Father in heaven when the DNA manifests itself. And, and they, therefore they love like the Father loves. Jesus says the Father loves like this. The way the sun shines and the way the rain falls. The sun shines indiscriminately and the rain falls indiscriminately. The sun doesn't pick and choose who it's going to shine on. It just does what it does. And the rain doesn't pick and choose who it's going to fall on. It just does what it does. So also, someone who's got the DNA of Abba, Father, doesn't pick and choose who they love. They just love because that's what a, a, a child of God does. That's what God does, and therefore that's what a child of God does. You love indiscriminately. You, it means you ascribe worth to others indiscriminately. We are to be a people who ascribe worth to others. Therefore, we're not a people who go around trying to find worth in others. The world loves according to the worth it finds. We are to be a people who love according to the fact that we have the DNA of Abba Father. We love according to the worth we ascribe. And the worth we ascribe is an unsurpassable worth. Because we're doing it in agreement with God who thought they were dying for. And our main job as kingdom people is to agree with God about that and to prove that we agree with God about that by virtue of the fact that we're willing to sacrifice for others, even our enemies. And remember when Jesus says enemies, in a first century Palestinian context, speaking to Jews, the crowd's going to be thinking Romans. That's who the enemy is. And the Romans are the terrorists who have already conquered the land, the terrorists who occupy the land. The Romans are those terrorists who abuse us and, and sometimes uh, enslave our children and sometimes unjustly throw us into prison and overtax us and sometimes kill us. They round up people just to flex their muscle and kill them. The enemies that Jesus is talking about are the real enemies, the nasty enemies, not just the grouchy, ungodly neighbor enemies. No, these are the enemies that threaten your life. Those are the ones, these are the enemies that every other Jewish person is rallying around. The, the, the nationalism is based on this sentiment against a hatred towards the Romans and Jesus comes along and says, love them and bless them and no wonder he gets crucified this is not popular it's never been popular it never will be popular until the lord returns nationalism always trumps this always but jesus says you can't belong to two kingdoms you, you, are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or not are you a child of abba father or not this is this is the radicality of the kingdom this is the beauty of the kingdom it is as outrageous as the idea that the omnipotent God would become a human being and die at the hands of his enemies rather than crush him. We're to imitate that ridiculousness. That is what it is to love in a kingdom kind of way. And then Jesus goes on and says this, love, in another place he says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then you will be children of the Most High. Then you will be children of the Most High. Then you will be children of the Most High. Now, Jesus isn't saying, this is some kind of a contest, go out and do your good deeds and, and, and try to love like this, and then you get the merit badge of being a child of, 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 of the Most High. But he's simply saying, as he said before, that this is how you manifest that you're a child of the Most High. He certainly is saying that if a person refuses to love their enemies and to pray for their enemies and do good to their enemies and to lend to their enemies without expecting anything back, and remember, the enemies are, first and foremost, the Romans, a person who refuses to do that can't be considered a child of God. Because the distinguishing mark of a child of God is precisely that you are willing to do this. Lend to your enemies without expecting anything back. The nasty enemies. We have trouble doing that with our best friends. <laughs> Here Jesus says, do it to 
your enemies. And here, here's why this is so important. Jesus here identifies, defines love as doing good to enemies and, 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 and blessing them, lending to them without expecting anything back. You benefit them. To love somebody is to benefit them, do good to them. And that's important because it completely undercuts what has been the standard response to this radical teaching among Jesus' followers throughout history. It's the way to get out of this. Here's how you get out of this. St. Augustine provided it for us in the 5th century when he said, oh, we can love our enemies, but still kill them, persecute them, uh, bomb them, stick knives through them, put them on fire, whatever, uh, because love is an inner disposition. Well, Jesus says, no, love isn't just an inner disposition, as though you could divorce it from your actions. Love and actions cannot be divorced from one another. If you love them, you work to benefit them, and you do good to them. Uh, it's all about action. This is what sets the kingdom apart, this kind of radical love. This is the kind of love that God is towards us. While we were yet enemies, this is the kind of love we're to embody like the rain falls and like the sun shines even to our enemies. When you get this, when this, when this, when this, when the coin drops in the slot, you immediately see the radical gulf between the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, which always looks like Calvary, and what has been regarded as church throughout most of church history and yet today. There's a wild gulf between the two. How much does the church look like Jesus Christ laying down their life for enemies? That's the kingdom of God. To the degree that it does, it, it manifests the kingdom of God, which is what our job is. To the degree that it doesn't, it does not manifest the kingdom of God. It's just a religion. Throughout history, it just blows me away that we've had, throughout history, uh, a legacy of, I mean, millions of heretics have been put to death for the glory of God, tortured to death for the glory of God. Um, well, what's the worst heresy? Believing something that's heretical or putting the heretic to death. You know, when John Calvin puts Michael Servetus to death, burns him alive, because Michael Servetus was screwed up about the Trinity. He was wrong about the Trinity, for sure. Uh, so he's put to death. Well, yeah, it's a heresy to deny the Trinity, but what's the worst heresy? Denying the Trinity or putting, burning alive somebody who denies the Trinity? Seems to me that that is the far more grievous heresy. Calvin should have asked Michael Servetus what he needed to borrow, and he should have lent it to him without expecting anything back. That's what Jesus says to do. <laughs> think about it. Instead, he, he sets him on fire. I, is that doing good to Michael Servetus? I don't think so. <laughs> you see, and yet we hold up Calvin and others who kill people as heroes. Uh, what's wrong with this picture? This is the all or nothing, folks. Everything hangs on our manifesting this kind of a love. You know, I saw a poll uh, several years ago, I'm sure some of you read this, where uh, it showed that American evangelicals tend to uh, favor violence against national and domestic enemies more than the average uh, public. And they have a greater buy-in to the military more than the average public. They are, have a greater approval rating of capital punishment more than the average public. They were approved of, of unmanned drones, the use of them, more than the average public. In general, they had a more favorable view of the use of righteous violence more than the average public. Now, there's a world of difference between what God requires of us and what God expects of governments. Okay, so you, you, you can't just translate one into the other. On the other hand, I, you, wouldn't you think there'd be some correlation here? I mean, when, the, if we're, when, I, when I read something like that, I ask myself, is anyone paying attention to what Jesus actually said and the life he actually modeled? You would think there'd be some kind of correlation here, some kind of... A little bit less confidence in violence, a little less approval of violence, you know, a little less trust in violence. Instead, there tends to be more. And there, it has been that way throughout history. Folks, the kingdom is about loving enemies. I'm sorry. And enemies are the nasty kind of enemies, the threatening kind of enemies. And we can have all sorts of if, ands, and buts and, and questions like that. But just know, we just receive it. Let it soak in. The love, the love of God that's manifested towards us is radical. And so the love that we're to manifest to the world is radical. And that's precisely how it stands out. That's how it's different. That's how, it, that's how, how we're a witness to others. It's the love that looks like Calvary. And everything hangs on this. Everything hangs on this. Which goes to the next point. This is our main witness to the world. Jesus says, everyone will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. If you love one another. That's how they'll know. And then he says, 
At the end of his life, he prays this prayer, Father, may they be completely one, referring to this oneness of love that is similar, that reflects the love of the Father and the Son. May they, may, may, may they manifest the Trinity, is what he's saying. So that, look at that word, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Folks, God leverages the credibility of the gospel, the credibility that Jesus Christ is Lord. He leverages that on the love of those who follow Jesus. The world's supposed to know that Jesus is real, first and foremost, by the radical way we love. Love one another and love our enemies. God doesn't leverage the credibility of the gospel first and foremost on our debating skills, how clever our arguments are, how wonderful our books are. He doesn't leverage the credibility of the gospel on how good our sermons are, how great our children's program is, how, how, how the great architecture of our churches. He doesn't leverage the credibility of the gospel uh, on, on the, the clever positions that we have or the stands we take in society or anything of the sort. He leverages the credibility of the gospel first and foremost by our love. We're to love in a way that puts on display the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it forces this question, this question, are, are, we, are, are we convincing people that Jesus Christ is Lord by how we are willing to sacrifice for them? Is our sacrificial life witnessing to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is our life, the way we sacrifice for others, even those we don't know, is it raising the question that only Jesus Christ as Lord can answer? Just soak in the question. Just soak in the question. Because see, here's the thing. Uh, it's really good and important and vital that we love our spouses and love our children and love our grandchildren and love our friends. Absolutely. But it's also true, is it not, that every healthy person out there loves their spouse and loves their children, loves their grandchildren, loves their friend. And so, if we don't have time in our life... Because everyone's so busy. Time to love those outside of our spouses, our, our children, our grandchildren, our friends. Then how is our love possibly a witness to the truth of the gospel? If our life is too busy to have space to love those beyond our spouse and our children and our grandchildren and our friends, then folks, we're too busy. Because our call is to have space in our life to manifest this love towards others, even our enemies. And God wants to use that to bring these people, to love these people into the kingdom. Think about it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, hey, look, if you just love those who love you, what's the reward in that? What's distinct about that? Blah, blah, blah. The tax collectors do that. The question is, do you love those that nobody else will love? Do you do the unconventional thing? How is your life different from what is normal out there? To that degree, we put on display the kingdom. And God by God's own decision, wants to use that love displayed towards others to bring people into the kingdom. So it's not only the distinguishing mark of the disciple, it's also the main way we witness to the world. And then number three, listen to this. Oh, let us soak in. Holy Spirit, soak us. It is the all-encompassing command. The all-encompassing command. So Jesus at one point says, this is my command, that you love one another. And John then repeats this later on when he says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Jesus speaks and John speaks as though, as though there was only one command, as though there was only one, one message. This is the command. This is the message. As though it was the only one. And in a sense, it is the only one. Because if we get this one down, everything else we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we don't get this one down, there's nothing else worth getting down. This is it, folks. This is the message. This is the command. It's about loving the way God loves. And then we find later on, uh, it says this, um, above all, Oh no, the whole law is summed up in a single command. We find this throughout the New Testament. The whole law is signed in a single command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says in Matthew 22, everything hangs on this. Folks, everything hangs on this. Everything that we're supposed to do is summed up in this. Get this one down and everything else that we're supposed to do will be gotten down. But if we fail to get this down, there's nothing else worth, worth getting down. That's why Paul says, above all, as we see in Colossians 3.14. Above all, above all, put on love. And Peter repeats it when he says, above all, maintain constant love for one another. Above all. Now look at If it's above all, that means, does it not? That not only is there to be nothing put above this, but there's not to be put anything alongside of this. If something, some of the considerations put alongside of this, then clearly love is not above all. 
To put love above all means it stands alone as the the single most important thing we are called to believe and called to do. It trumps everything else. I hear frequently, I, I, I hear Christians say things or write things like this. In fact, uh, I've had people write this against me when, when I've espoused this position. Uh, they'll say things like this. Yes, yes, we, we, we must love. Clearly we must love. But we must be balanced. We must be balanced. And so, yes, we must emphasize God's love, but we must also emphasize God's justice. Yes, we must emphasize God's love, but we also must remember correct doctrine. Yes, we must emphasize God's love, but we must remember God's holiness. And these have to balance one another. Now we have to have, we have to be balanced and all things be balanced. Everything be balanced. But folks, if love is to be put above everything, then you don't balance it with anything else. There's nothing that is to qualify this or to, to in any way, uh, compromise this. No, love is to be put above all. In fact, I'll tell you this. It, 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 unless your sense of justice is under God's love, then what you think is justice is not justice. If you take justice and you separate it from God's love, put it alongside of God's love, make it compete with God's love, then your justice will end up being simply a self-righteous moralism. And you take God's holiness, if, if that's not governed by God's love, your concept of God's holiness, then, then your sense of holiness, separated from God's love, you'll end up with some kind of demonic legalism. And, and, and correct doctrine, you want to talk about correct doctrine, unless your doctrine is governed by God's love, God's love isn't just one of the things you believe, it is the most important thing you believe and conditions everything else you believe. Unless that's the case, you're going to end up with empty dogmatism. Because the truth is, is that there's no greater manifestation of God's justice than Calvary love. And there's no greater manifestation of God's holiness than Calvary love. And there's no more important doctrine you could possibly believe than that God looks like Calvary and that we're called to, to imitate Calvary. Uh, this is, this should be the test case of orthodoxy. This is, this is the quintessential, uh, manifestation of what it is to be orthodox. It kills me that, that throughout church history we had people burned alive for being mistaken about the Trinity or the Incarnation or the Bible or the Pope or whatever. And no one has officially ever had their hands slapped for not loving enough. But if we're understanding what the Bible says, then not loving enough should be the, the most grievous heresy there is. This is the, to fail in this is to fail in everything. Amen. It's, this is it. Which is why to burn someone alive, whatever their heresy is, burning them is a far worse heresy. This is the definition of orthodoxy. It, it, uh, it encompasses everything above all. And then we read Paul saying, be imitators of God, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. I say this verse all the time. It's my life verse. I think it's, it summarizes everything right here. Live in love. If you do that, you're going to be imitating Jesus. That's why he says, as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're to be imitators of Calvary. And we're to live in it. Live in it. Which means, as I often say around here, if you're wondering whether you should love or not, this person or that person or that person, that threatening person, if you're wondering whether this is the right time to love, check your pulse. (laughs) And if there's a heartbeat, that means it's the right time. (laughs) And ask yourself, are there any brain waves going on? And the fact that you could ask yourself that question means there are brain waves, which means it's the right time to love. If you are alive, if you're breathing, it's the right time to love, which is another way of simply saying it's always the right time to love. It's always necessary to love because we're to live in love. And love looks like Jesus Christ dying for his enemies. Amen. At all times, to all people, no fans or buts, live in this kind of love. And finally, Paul says, do everything in love. Oh, 1 Corinthians 16, 4. Do everything in love. Um, everything. That means if you're ever doing anything that's not motivated by love, with a concern for ascribing worth to others that cost yourself, then stop doing it. If you're ever in a debate or a discussion and you find that winning the debate or impressing the crowd or saving your embarrassment becomes more important to you than ascribing worth to the person that you're debating, then do the kingdom a favor and shut up. <laughs> because you can win the debate and you're still going to lose the debate if you're not doing it out of love. Do everything in love. And remember, our thoughts are things we do, and our attitudes are things we do. And so to do everything in love means we are to be a people who take pay attention to what we're thinking. I'll say more about this next week. This is the main problem. Pay atten- and if there's any thoughts that we have that are not consistent with the love as defined by uh, the cross, or if we ever have attitudes towards anybody that are, isn't consistent with the cross, 
then again, do the kingdom a favor and shut up. Replace those thoughts with thoughts that are consistent with the love revealed on Calvary. That's why Paul says, whatsoever things are loving and whatsoever things are true, think on those things. Philippians 4.8. Which means if you're ever having an unloving thought or an unloving attitude, stop thinking on those things. And it doesn't matter whether it's a family member or somebody on television. If, you're, if you've got unloving thoughts going on, you're violating 1 Corinthians 16.14. Do everything in love. In fact, those private thoughts we'll see next week are more important than anything else. you got brain pollution. <laughs> you need to weed it out. So love is our distinguishing mark of a disciple. Love is our main witness to the world. Love is the all-encompassing command. And finally, folks, love is the all or nothing of the kingdom. This is it. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, Paul says, but don't have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. I'm just a bunch of noise. The Corinthians, like a lot of people today, were pretty impressed with the spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and things like that. And Paul is, is all for it. He, he's got no problem with that. That's wonderful. And we're all for it. But he says, you can have all those nice gifts. Wonderful. But if, but if it's not motivated by love, for the purpose of manifesting love, and love is defined by Calvary, it's altogether worthless. Just noise, 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 noise. You hear about revivals once in a while going on around the world where people are, are speaking in tongues or there's healings that are happening or, or, or gold dust is falling from the ceiling or uh, people's feelings are turning to gold or legs are being lengthened or other kind of miracles. And that's wonderful. People get all excited and they pack stadiums about it. And I've got no problem with that. I don't think Paul would have any problems with that. Praise God. If miracles happen, miracles happen. But if we're listening to, to what Paul says, the criteria we should use to assess whether or not that revival was a kingdom revival or just a religious carnival, the criteria is this. Did people go away from that revival with a greater capacity to love their enemies than they had when they came? If the answer is yes, praise God, that was a kingdom revival. But if the answer is no... Well then, what was the point of the whole thing? It's noise. It's noise unless it's motivated by love for the purpose of manifesting this kind of love. And then Paul goes on and says this. And suppose I have the gift of prophecy. Praise God. And can fathom all mysteries. And I've got all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. Nothing. Zippo. Zada. Nadier. Think about it. Prophecy, the ability to, to discern what God is doing and what God's going to do and to speak it. Man, if you have that gift, it can be so impressive. And the, the gift to know all mysteries. Think about it. What if I, what if I had the ability to know every mystery I could explain? I could explain the, 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 the hypostatic ontological differentiation of the three persons of the Trinity and the hypostatic union of the incarnation of God in flesh to a five-year-old. Whoa, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? What if I had all knowledge? And, and I, you ask me any question you want, I could answer it. I could parse every Hebrew verb in a second. I could look up every, I could have access to every fact in history. I'd be a walking encyclopedia. I'd be virtually omniscient. Wow! Think about how, man, we pack out the church. We could pack out auditoriums. I could get on television. That'd be pretty impressive, don't you think? And then if you add on top of that, I could move mountains. I go to mountains. The mountain, you'd be removed over there. And the mountain was moved. If I did that once, even to a little, little mountain, I'd be on the cover of Christianity Today. I'd be a somebody. I'd be famous. I'd be rich. I'd be driving a Rolls Royce. And I would have it going down. People would be impressed. Who wouldn't be impressed? That's impressive stuff. But if that isn't motivated by love, that isn't, if that isn't impacting people with love, Paul says it's all together worthless, nothing, religious, noise, empty futility. Might impress the world, but in the kingdom it doesn't impress God. The only thing that matters, and here's what Paul, this is the last verse, Paul says this in, in Galatians, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith working in love. The only thing that matters is faith working in love. How, it's not about how impressive the person is, their personality, their faith, their speaking, their, their supernatural, all of that. That doesn't count unless it's a faith working in love. The only thing that counts, the only thing that registers on God's faith-o-meter, on his worth-o-meter, is faith working in love. And faith is about trusting God, and love is about looking like Calvary. Folks, this is it. This is the bullseye of the bullseye, the center of the center. Christianity 101, Christianity PhD. It sums up everything that we're to be about. Living in Christ-like love at all times. Sacrificing whatever it takes for that grouchy neighbor that no one else wants to talk to. If we get this down, everything else we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we don't get this down, 
we might as well pack up shop and just go play bingo or do something else. It just doesn't matter because it's worthless. This is it. You will only be able to do this. I'll end with this. We'll only be able to do this if we're trusting God. Faith working in love. Because we'll never, this isn't some kind of do good contest where we're supposed to go out now and crank it out on our own effort. This is a manifestation of life. It's a manifestation that we pass from death into life. We'll only be able to do this, love like this, if we have died to ourselves and are trusting God for everything. We'll only be able to do this if we've died to ourselves and are getting all of our life and all of our worth and all of our significance, all of our value and all of our security from God. If we're not trusting God for everything, then we'll be living our life in a self-protective mode to some degree or other, buttressing up our life and Now we'll be evaluating people, responding to them based on the worth we find rather than ascribing worth regardless of what we find. You can only trust God. You can only live in love like this if you're trusting God for everything. Uh, I I tweeted this yesterday that every firing of a bullet is a profession that you trust the use of righteous violence more than you trust the God who forbids it. Think about it. Trusting God for everything. I want to close in prayer that the Spirit seals this message on our hearts As I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you are here and have any need whatsoever, um, uh, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. I know that this can raise a lot of questions. Keep those. Uh, We're going to have a QA and a on this uh, in June. And we'll address all the the different issues that arise with this. But uh, right now, I just want us to soak in the, the urgency. Feel the urgency of this happening in our life. Would you stand as I send this out? With this prayer and benediction, I pray that we go out of here being a people who are committed to getting all of our life worth, significance, and security from God alone. I pray we leave here as a people who are committed to trusting God with everything, uh, uh, that we be a people who are committed to dying to ourselves daily, crucifying ourselves daily, that we could also then be a people who are committed to living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. May we do that to our friends, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, but also our grouchy neighbors and our worst enemies, to thereby put on display the beauty, radical, scandalous, very rare love that is Calvary. In Jesus' name and all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and love on the world.